Coming up on this week's A Lively Experiment, the cost of building the Pawtucket Soccer Stadium has gotten a whole lot more expensive. And this week's latest developments surrounding the Washington Bridge. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazenwhite, Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us on the panel, Providence Journal reporter Antonia Nouri Farzan, Ken Block, author and founder of Watchdog RI, and Harrison Tuttle, president of the Black Lives Matter Rhode Island Political Action Committee. Welcome into this week's Lively, I'm Jim Hummel. We have some new information on the Washington Bridge that we will get to a little later. But first up, there are many other issues we have set aside the past couple of weeks as the bridge has dominated the news cycle. After we finished taping last week's program, news broke that the cost of borrowing for the soccer stadium at Tidewater Landing has increased dramatically. Ken, of the many things you were doing, you've been keeping an eye on Tidewater Landing. And I think the frustrating thing for a lot of people is this is a done deal. It's not like we can go back and rewind the clock. It's just bad news, swallow it. Yeah, my, my big problem with Tidewater, with 38 Studios, is that we have our government committing taxpayer dollars on Hail Mary ideas to either rescue downtown Providence, like 38 Studios was, or in the case of Pawtucket, try to replace what Pawtucket lost when the Paws Fox left. And the problem is these are bad ideas to begin with, but worse, this borrowing is not something that taxpayers are being asked to approve on the ballot because they're being issued with moral obligation bonds. And I think that's wrong. And what we've learned with 38 Studios and now with Tidewater is there can be massive, painful economic consequences, financial consequences to taxpayers, they should be asked to approve deals like this because we're not seeing our government acting responsibly in terms of risking taxpayer dollars. And so I don't understand why we aren't asked to approve moral obligation bonds in the same way that we do regular bonds. Yeah, and the, the other thing is bonds almost always pass, but you wonder in this case whether if this was put to the voters would it pass? Yeah, you got to wonder. And my colleague Patrick Anderson, I think, got at something really important in his story about this this week, which is that also the General Assembly could have just appropriated that $27 million, but wasn't likely to. So they kind of did this end run where it, to get that $27 million, we're now borrowing about $54 million, And when you get in all the interest costs, that's just going to balloon. So to just take it out of the ARPA money or somewhere else, just make the investment wherever yeah if they had just asked the general assembly they could have saved us all potentially a lot of money but they were worried the general assembly was going to say no so they didn't do it it's particularly interesting considering what was originally proposed which was not only the soccer stadium but also the housing units that were supposed to be centered around this deal to we you know revitalized uh, Pawtucket and mm -hmm. so uh, when you consider the fact that housing is not a part of this plan, uh, at least when it comes to the rising cost, this project is, is combined with a lot of different um, what we would consider grants uh, in terms of 
funneling together packages of money to ensure that we can fully fund this and the prices have only gone up due to inflation. So it's a case in which obviously this project started with the former Governor Raimondo and, you know, with the tie-breaking vote that Governor Dan McKee had, it kind of he's taken on this project in terms of responsibility. But I remember there being a lot of opposition because of the housing crisis that we have and the need for an increased amount of units to be built, particularly in Pawtucket. Well, and they front-loaded the money then they said let's shift it over to the stadium have you heard in any of this let's get the housing back on track or do you think there's not enough money to do that i don't think there's enough money to do that i'm not certain that the developer wants to put much if any of his own money into what's happening here and i've also read a report somewhere that if housing were to happen more public dollars would have to be committed to the project uh the whole thing just seems poorly considered uh, and premised on this idea that somehow a minor league stadium can lead to massive economic, positive economic outcomes, and all of the evidence, national evidence, shows that that typically doesn't happen. Not only that, but this is the most uh, expensive uh, minor league stadium in the entire country. And yeah. so we have to examine what went wrong. Now, here. Ken and I, are in, I think it's safe to say, we're in a little bit different age bracket than you two here. Is soccer something you think is going to catch on? Maybe, but I think there's a huge risk here where if the team folds, which does happen, then we have an empty stadium right. and no housing. Right, and right. land that's been taken taken up right. already. Right, and a lot of death. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. So soccer is an uh, increasingly popular sport here in America when you consider the World Cup coming um, to America um, in the next year, uh, but also when you consider the population and demographic makeup of the city of Pawtucket, of this, uh, of you know, surrounding areas like Central Falls, it is something that is attractive. But the idea that uh, this um, organization, this team, is going to, you know, be a place that people want to go and watch uh, soccer is is really there's a lot of pressure on the team itself to succeed because of the amount of uh, controversy and trouble in terms of funding this that has been associated. You mentioned 38 studios, and I was thinking that vote was pretty unanimous except for Carl Waddenston. Right. This was that vote that McKee needed to jump in, so there were concerns there. Oh, uh, how... I mean, it wasn't like anybody said, this is going to be great right. and it's going to fly through. I, I think that the Commerce Corporation certainly has to be gun-shy about projects like this, given the disaster that 38 Studio was, Studios was. I think that Governor McKee's exercise of his, of his tie-breaking vote is telling and interesting and certainly puts ownership of this thing wholly on him. Uh, pretty risky and ultimately I think, again, I just have to repeat this, I think it's wrong that we're committing taxpayer dollars that we are going to owe the money on this without being asked to vote for it. Yeah, it's but really where are everybody who's voting on it now, and the governor particularly, they say they can refinance in 10 years. He's gonna be in his 80s and probably off somewhere. He's not gonna be around to have to answer that question. The, we seldom see accountability for decisions made by the people leading our state, and it drives me crazy. Final question on this. What do you think about, again, I, I don't run the team, but they're going to be playing the first year because they couldn't get the stadium done at Bryant. I have a hard time finding Bryant College sometimes, and I wonder that as opposed to maybe somewhere Pierce Field, maybe in East Providence or whatever. What about that decision? It's not ideal, especially when you want, you know, 
folks to come out and, and be excited about a new team in Rhode Island. It's not like Rhode Island is uh, a place in which we automatically think is this hub of, of multi-sports. We've got URI, we've got PC, but outside of that, we really don't have a lot. And so there is an opportunity for a new market of fans to come in and join, but um, switching locations, controversies, is it at in Pawtucket, is it at, is it at Bryant? It's going to confuse a lot of people. And, um, you know, you just hope on behalf of the team that, that they, you know, market it in a way in which, you know, people continue to be excited because there is excitement on the team. Front. Okay. Um, the state of Rhode Island rolled out a new tourism campaign. This is what I would call a soft opening. We will talk about this. There really was no press conference. There's a series of six videos. If you haven't seen them, we put together three of them. Let's take a look at them, and then we will uh, talk about it. So, Antonio, you got the choice assignment to be able to look at uh, all of this. This is titled All That. So your thoughts, what struck me was you tried to get as big a bang. There was no press conference. There was, it, was, it was it just kind of they rolled it out. Right, yeah, we just got a press release on Wednesday afternoon. I personally didn't even know a new tourism slogan was coming. Uh, the Rhode Island Current actually reported that there was supposed to be a big launch at PPAC and apparently it got canceled because of the snowstorm. So they decided, okay, we're just going to put out this video message on a website and go with that. But, yeah, I mean, my reaction, I will say at first I kind of, saw all that and was like, huh? That was my immediate reaction just reading the press release. Actually seeing the videos, I feel like they did actually cover a lot of what I really love about Rhode Island and would think makes sense to promote about the state. So I've kind of come around to it. Kind of curious what you guys think. I don't think that anybody would be happy uh, knowing us Rhode Islanders about a slogan. I think it was kind of bound to have criticism. I mean, cooler and warmer ruined it for everybody, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, it was certainly a situation in which brings back past memories. I think, <laughs> look, the, the idea behind the slogan, the, the reasoning, which is to talk about how Rhode Island has such a diverse group of things to do, whether it's, you know, using our shoreline uh, or, or going downtown Providence. I mean, I get it, uh, but I think it's, it's concerning, and I believe that Ken is going to dive into maybe some of the cost associated Before with Before he does that, what do you think about the music? <sighs> well, uh, I, I don't know. No comment. I will say they did say that the music can be changed for different audiences. So you might have more country music in some settings. But they had to get music specific. You can't take some. I mean, you, you, have, right. to, you have to basically create your own score for that. So yeah. I want to know who some of those people are. But go ahead, Ken. That music means I need one less cup of coffee in the morning. Right? I mean, that, that Just was, put it that on twice look, and you're all good to go. All that is better than the stuffy. 
Okay. Yeah. Let's just, I think we can totally all we can all we can all admit that that's that. Yeah. But you know, I know a lot about free media, earned media, right? And the Rhode Island's problem is a lot of our earned media is attached to some pretty negative things. I have a free suggestion that I want to make to Rhode Island's marketers that I think is could really work here. You want to advertise where you can have a direct positive impact on, on the economics of the state. So what we ought to do is we ought to play off the bridge problem where people are going to have a very difficult time getting out to Cape Cod. And we should be making the case to people who want to get out to the Cape who are going to get log jammed at the broken bridge and say, you really should go to South County. It's got everything the Cape does, and we don't have the bridges to cross. That's free. I think you're going to see some real positive economic uh, impacts from that. And that would be making lemonade out of some lemons in terms of the bridge problem. And maybe Newport, although Newport's not so wild about this extra, extra yeah, not traffic at all. Yeah, as it is, right? Yeah, yeah, please. Seeing all those shots in the ad, please make it stop. Get people to Blackstone Valley. Leave you know, us the, other, the other thing is I sent this to my kids, and this is for uh, who live out of state now. One's in New York City, one's in North Carolina. And we're kind of skeptical. You know, it's funny. As you were talking about Tidewater, we're thinking about 38 Studios. This, we're thinking about cooler and warmer. So we have long memories. But this is aimed at people outside of Rhode Island. So we kind of have to take off our myopic Rhode Island lens. And I wonder if you're in Montana or you're in Florida or you're in Ohio, you're like, hey, that looks like an interesting place to go. Correct. And, and this was really geared towards millennials as well as when they were conducting polling on, on what different options, what different slogans to use, that they reached out to folks outside of Rhode Island, as well as inside Rhode Island, uh, to determine what the best option was. But this was geared uh, towards outside tourism uh, coming into Rhode Island, in which they pulled people and found this to be the most efficient one. Yeah, and there has been some criticism of the fact that there's a Florida agency that did it, given that you know we've got RISD here, we do have local agencies, but maybe there is something to be said for having an out-of-state perspective on now, what makes you Now, be honest, there. when you were looking at all six of these, you wanted to make sure there was nothing from Iceland, right? I paused every frame to see if there was any It took that Iceland. took you longer than to write the yes, story. it did, literally, exactly. yes. Half a million dollars Thornity. for this? It was certainly a lot better. Cooler and warmer. What do we yeah. spend? Five or ten million dollars? It was a lot of money. Yeah. It, you know, it's really hard to, with advertising in general, it's really hard to see what your return on investment is. <coughs> um, yeah, I guess it makes sense to, to try to push out the message that we're a good place to come to. Uh, it's just, you just have to really wonder if it is, if it can have a positive impact or not. And it's an impossible question to, to ask and answer. But... You know, it's it's. I, I would like to see the three million spent in another in another way. Ultimately, I think I will matter. personally ask the tourism people on your behalf if they can put together a soundtrack that you can play in your car whenever you yeah. need to get hyped up. In or the morning. you know, after nine o'clock at night, also. Right? <laughs> That'll well. It depends on which it depends on which one you're going to put in. Okay, the story we have been talking about uh, for weeks. There was a little bit of news this week on the Washington Bridge. The first announcement earlier in the week was that they're going to try to rejigger the lanes to add extra lanes, three each way. We're going to see how that works, but that's going to take two months. And then on Wednesday, a uh, draft report from one of the consultants uh, was leaked. Uh, everybody got it, uh, the media, uh, saying basically, I think what we knew all along, that this bridge is in rough shape and it looks possibly that we're going to need a total rebuild. Any surprise to you? Uh, not a lot of surprise on the fact that the bridge needs work, more of the fact that, you know, we have, you know, documents that suggest that inspection, they knew that this was going to be an issue dating back all the way to 2020. 
And so you have to really wonder who are the people that were making those decisions uh, to move forward that have put us in this position um, up until this moment where it felt like, you know, everybody found out, you know, in this random week in December and, you know, we had knowledge over the last couple of years about it. So I think there needs to be real accountability. Obviously, the General Assembly is having oversight committees. They had the first one. We're expecting more. Um, but there does need to be more accountability. There is no way that the federal government is going to be completely fine with financing the, you know, refinancing a bridge uh, if, you know, people who contributed to this bridge being having to ultimately come down, it looks like, um, aren't at, you know, held accountable. Yeah. The biggest problem for me, and I think for a lot of people in the state and outside of Rhode Island, probably the feds, is that the bridge, the, the, the catastrophic failure of this bridge was not anticipated and that lives were put at risk. Uh, we know that there was a lot of maintenance negligence attached to uh, keeping this bridge sound. Uh, and worse is we are being told over and over again that the accountability, understanding what happened, telling us how this was possible to have gotten us to the point, not specifically what failed, but in terms of the bridge and the engineering, but what failed administration-wise, what failed from a bureaucratic perspective, from a state perspective, that this caught us by surprise? How can we have confidence that there aren't more bridges on the brink of disaster? And how can we have confidence that this Department of Transportation can effectively spend the money and ensure our safety on all the other bridges? Because right now, I know that most Rhode Islanders, regardless of political affiliation, have some serious concerns about whether the Department of Transportation has the wherewithal to do their job correctly and offer us no more surprises. Yeah, I mean, I, my takeaway from the report at least wasn't, I mean, I think we all knew that they might have to completely rebuild the bridge. That wasn't a surprise. What's disturbing when you see terms like progressive collapse and they're talking about <laughs> chunks of the bridge possibly falling to the Seekonk River. That's not great. Yeah, well, and they also, they just closed a, uh, a bridge in Coventry. I mean, it's not one that probably a lot of people use, but, well, and this, we've seen this over the last 10 years. And look, the, the administration inherited a lot of this, but they've been in, in um, office for eight months now. And I think of it, um, Antonia, I know Peter Alvidi said, look, we've done all this great work across the, the state. If you're not keeping your eye on the big bridge, it's almost like being a reporter. You can, work, you can work for 10, 20, 30 years. One bad story can ruin your career. Right, and this is the thing everyone in the state is going to remember for many, many years. Um, so if it does have to be a total rebuild, oh, so let's get back to the, the, uh, the rejiggering, as I like to call it, of the lanes. Seems kind of, I told this to my wife who, who uses the bridge every day over and back. She said, are you crazy? It's thin as it is right now. I think they're going to have to lower the speeds, obviously. What I don't get is, you're going 20, 30 miles an hour, and then you'll see a car rolled over. I'm like, how did that happen? Yeah, uh, they're going to go with 10-foot wide lanes. That is very narrow, uh, especially when there's a truck in one of those lanes at the same time. The, my concern with the whole thing, I, I get it. You need the, it's a choke point, so more lanes should give you more cars through, ultimately, which makes sense. The problem is, if you're making it more likely, you're going to see accidents there. Uh, you're probably not, you're gonna 
maybe net not really see a difference because while it's moving fine, it's moving fine. <laughs> but when it doesn't, the tie-ups get monumental. We've seen days where it can take two hours to cross that bridge because of accidents on the bridge. Are we inviting more accidents because we're narrowing, because we're adding a lane and narrowing the lanes. I had somebody ask me, well now you're putting six lanes of traffic in effect on the new bridge, is that structurally okay? The eastbound, what about the wear and tear there? Yeah, Even I, though it's a newer bridge. Yeah, I mean I think this is an ideal and I think that this is forcing uh, the engineers at DOT to make difficult decisions that I'm sure they know come with the negative you know, outcomes that we're kind of seeing. And I think they're trying to alleviate for not only the, the riders, but also for political reasons to say, hey, we're doing something. Um, because I think the situation regarding the bridge is so dire um, that uh, if they just came out and said, hey, look, sorry, you're just gonna have to deal with the situation. You know, this bridge is gonna have to come down. I don't know if that would give many Rhode Islanders and outside folks that you know are coming because of our great slogan, all that, um, you know, uh, in a bit, you know, excitement to come to the to the state. Okay, uh, we could probably do a whole half hour show on this. The Rhode Island Public Transit Authority, better known to you as RIPTA, Antonio, you've been writing about this. Um, the latest is service cuts, and it seems like kind of a death spiral. You're trying to get more riders, but at the same time, they're having problems with getting uh, drivers. I know they're boosting the pay a little bit, but then if you have service cuts, then they're like, well, I can't rely on RIPTA. Exactly, yeah, and I mean, speaking of the bridge, I mean, one way to solve the problem of funneling so many cars through such a small space would be to get people out of those cars, have people on the bus, but I mean, for a lot of people, that's not a viable option to get where they need to go. So yeah, we are looking at pretty um, severe cuts at this point. There are some routes that would become more frequent, but for the most part, it's routes that would go away, that might lose some weekend service. Your article, I mean, this route, this route, this, and I kept yeah. going and going, yeah, and I yeah. thought, that's a lot of routes. It's a lot, yeah, it's a lot. And you know, they did calculate this based on figuring out what are the routes with the less, least ridership, you know, which ones maybe doesn't make sense to cut, people aren't really taking advantage of them. But it does, all those cuts just add up. And it's fun, it's ironic also that this is the same time that we're working on putting on a new RIPTA station downtown, and it's like, who's gonna use that? Right. So this is really dire for folks that need to get to work, that folks that need to travel around the state. I mean, we look at, okay, low ridership, but there are people that are riding it. And people that use public transit, um, you know, usually are people that actually need to use it and don't have alternative ways to get around. Uh, cuts to this is gonna be drastic, not only to people's lives, but also, towards the overall uh, mobility for folks moving forward into the future for younger people that want to get around the state that don't have access to things like transportation. I mean, the way that we've handled public transit in the state, especially the cuts and the move uh, to RIPTA is just, it doesn't make any sense and it's in line with, I think, what we're seeing uh, with, the, with the bridge and other things, which is we just don't understand um, transit as a state and how to improve it compared to other places across the country. You know, one of the challenges with ridership is that uh, the vast majority of the people in Rhode Island don't work in downtown Providence. And for someone like me who lives in the East Bay, who for decades has commuted to Warwick for my job or for the folks who work in manufacturing who have to get themselves up to Lincoln or places like that where there's a lot of manufacturing jobs, there is no way 
other than driving that makes it any sense. It would take you double the time. It, it, it would triple. It would triple downtown, the time. And then I, I could ride my bike from my house in the East Bay <laughs> faster to Warwick than I could take a bus, right? So that's, but you risk your life trying to ride your bike all the way over there. Hey, there's so, Ken Block on yeah, 95. Yeah, no. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, it's really, I don't know that buses can be the answer given how, uh, where people need to get is scattered all over the state. And uh, to have the coverage that you need and the timeliness that you would need would require such a massive increase in the amount of public transportation to places where we, did, we don't even consider it right now. I don't think it's feasible. The problem is we were built when cars was the way to get around everywhere, and that's really what we have now. Uh, I don't know how we walk it back. I don't even know if light rail, if we could afford the cost of doing it, could give us the solution that we need to get people to where they ultimately need to get to. You know, I, I think that's the reasoning why, instead of talking about cuts, I think we need to increase the amount of funding, considering the, the issue around transit is that, which is, well, why would somebody take public transit like RIPTA to get to work if it's going to take them much longer, especially when there's different delays? what we see to be a model that works for public transit across the country is actually increasing the frequency in which we have different buses being able to go throughout the different um, cities and towns in which, you know, RIPTA has an amazing opportunity because we they are the one singular public transit uh, agency to actually really span across statewide and make it congruent. All right, let's uh, get to outrages and or kudos. Mr. Block, let's begin with you this week. Did you come up with one? You've had 20 uh, minutes to think about yeah, it. Yeah, I've been thinking about it since I woke up this morning. And, and <laughs> wow, I gotta, that's preparation. And I, I'm outraged out, but I'm also <laughs> struggling with my kudos. So I have a backup kudo. Okay. And my backup kudo was this. Uh, I got a Gatsby Days license plate, and I've got a burning boat on my car, and it is the greatest thing ever. If what we should get, we should lose the waves on our license plates, and every Rhode Islander should have a burning boat on their car. That might be one of the better things we could do for. Uh, you could have the publicity. burning boat and listen to the old that uh, soundtrack <laughs> in go. the morning, and yeah. you would be better than caffeine, Tom, right? Yeah. You'd be right. There's Ken Block riding his bike. He's going 60 miles an hour. Antonio, what do you have? Um, so I've got an outrage, which is the Reed Ott House in Pawtucket. I wrote about this recently. The Valley Breeze has covered this a lot. It's this beautiful house built in the 1800s in Pawtucket, very visible landmark in Quality Hill. And the Greek Orthodox Church that owns it has just neglected it, let it decay for decades now. It's in terrible shape. Now they're saying, oh, we got to tear it down. The city of Pawtucket actually offered them $500,000 towards just towards the cost grant not alone towards fixing it up they said no way we want to tear this down they were asked you know can someone buy this build housing there maybe again no so it's wow. just a very frustrating situation that's weird what do you have I think my outrage is uh, still the ongoing debate over Leobor uh, in the General Assembly I think uh, the Senate passing uh, the reform really doesn't do an accurate representation of the turmoil that's going on within uh, the General Assembly and lawmakers discussing, you know, what is the best possible way and I think proposed reforms uh, within the General Assembly, um, legislators are not happy with what uh, is being proposed. Because So the Senate passed it last year also. It was the hang-up was in the House, was mm -hmm. it not? Mm -hmm. So what are you hearing on the ground? I had heard a commitment from both the House and the Senate, we're going to get this done early. Well, here we are in mid-February. All you've had is a Senate hearing. 
Well, you've had a House uh, committee Did you have hearing, a House committee hearing, too? Um, but uh, if, for folks that tuned in, I mean, for about two and a half hours, um, you know, the committee grilled. Uh, the reform bills in terms of where they fell short, what what is actually included in it, and really didn't have any good answers on behalf of uh, the police unions in which they gave. And so I think the two biggest issues that are unaddressed in these reform bills are the back pay issue, in which we saw with Officer Dolan, and then the uh, cooling off period in which officers get uh, multiple months to just sit at home um, while they wait for their Leobor hearing. Those two issues are one of the bigger issues within the General Assembly that has yet to be addressed through legislation. All right, to be continued. Folks, thank you for, uh, it was a packed week. We appreciate you joining us. Harrison and Ken and Antonia, good to see you. Uh, you never know what's going to happen. Hey, maybe they'll have a solution to the Washington Bridge by this time next week. Maybe that's wishful thinking. Either way, whatever happens, we will be here for a full recap and analysis. We hope you have a great week and join us back here next week as a lively experiment continues. Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazenwhite, Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS.